Well, good morning. What a joy it is to be able to be with you this morning and to be able to bring the, the Word of God and to worship with family and friends. And uh, for those that are online, those that are here, it is a delight to be with you. We sang that first hymn this morning. My wife, uh, who was with me in the first service, but was with her, her father uh, this morning at watching it on Facebook, uh, texted me and said, um, that was the hymn that we sang at our wedding. So about 36 years ago, right here, uh, we sang that hymn. And so a little bit of a nostalgia as I'm with you to get together today. I do want to express appreciation to Pastor Wes and Cindy uh, just for his excellent leadership and their shepherding of this flock in such a masterful way. Uh, I did meet with the board last week, and I think a letter was sent out to you just affirming that and that God has truly blessed you as a congregation with a loving pastoral couple and blessed this couple with a wonderful congregation. So thank you for the support that you are given to them and just for the many ways in which you are a blessing to this community. We are living in, in difficult days. I don't have to tell you that. You know that. You live that. We have gone through an incredible, incredibly difficult couple of years. But in addition to the medical crisis, and maybe those that are in the health profession are dealing that in their face day by day, I, as a superintendent, and working with people, working with groups, working with churches, and seeing that we are in the midst of conflict. It just seems like it is all around us. And it certainly is. You turn on the news, especially this week, we've seen the news of what's happening in Ukraine, and we see that nations are at war. We see conflict arising there. We see conflict arising within our country and over political or ideological issues, racial divide. There's many things that just seem to pitch one person against another or groups against each other. And in the church, you'd think we could do it better, and I'm not sure we are doing it much better. There are theological and ideological cultural issues. Uh, denominations are, are facing conflict. Our, our brothers and sisters in the United Methodist Church are, are facing a difficult decision at their upcoming general conference about whether to stay together, stay united. And in local congregations, probably not a, a week goes by that I'm not talking to some pastor that's just trying to sort through the conflict that they are facing within their congregations over the response to the pandemic, over there are many, many other potential issues that we could be dealing with. And so I am wanting to address that in the message this morning, not maybe in a way that's resolving all the issues, but at least in how we how we address conflict in itself. When our, teenager, when our children were teenagers, Mary Beth would often quote Rodney King's plea back in, it's actually 30 years ago now, that he pleaded that the, the L.A. riots would stop, and he got on the news and he said, can we all get along? Can we? Can we get along? Sometimes I just want to plea that for the church and say, can we get along? And we know theological roots. We know that our hearts have been scarred by sin and that that presence of sin in our hearts maybe is continually sabotaging efforts for peace in our world. But there is hope for the church. There should be a difference in how we live. Our relationship with Christ not only changes our standing between ourselves and God, it changes the way we live 
I say most importantly of that, it changes the way we relate with one another. So I'd like to look to Scripture today to give us insight, not necessarily to resolve the differences, but how do we live with conflict in the church? The passage that was read for you earlier is from the 14th chapter of Romans, and this is a chapter in which Paul is addressing a conflict that had arisen, and it's dealing with the conflict in the church, and I'm hoping that God would help us to have some understanding of how that applies to us today. The passage that was read, verses 16 through 18, is, is what I would consider a summation of that chapter, a wrapping up what he has taught before. And we'll, we'll go through part of the first part of the chapter, but it comes down to this heading in verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Before I move on, let's just pray. Father, I pray that we would look at this verse, this truth, that I this morning would be able to say what you want me to say in the way you want me to say it, with the passion you want me to say it, and give us all ears to hear. Ears to hear your Spirit speaking to us about the kingdom of God how we can experience that peace and indeed that joy even in the midst of trials. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The kingdom is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's as if Paul were saying that there's something about the kingdom that you're not fully grasping, and therefore you're not enjoying it. But at least in part, it's because you're seeking the wrong things. You're seeking it the wrong way. And the thing that you're chasing after is summarized by that word eating and drinking. Now, that's not what kind of diet are you on. I was preaching from this verse a couple weeks ago, and between the two services, I went downstairs, and they had a box of Krispy Kreme donuts. You know, and it's like, is that what God's trying to say to me? I shouldn't have this, but no. That's not what this is saying. This is really addressing the controversy that he has been describing in the first part of the chapter. And it is regarding uh, whether or not Christian believers can eat meat of animals who had been sacrificed to pagan gods. And so this was, we may think, well, we don't struggle with that. That's, to my knowledge, nothing in the local market was sacrificed. I don't have to worry about that. It's, and we, it, we can even look back on it and say, that's such a trivial matter. Why would that even make it into the canon of Scripture? But this was not a trivial matter for the, for the early church. And they, probably there were people that were arguing and fighting, and you can just see the veins popping out in their, their neck when they were fighting with each other, each other over this. And Paul wants to see, teach us not only what is right. Actually, he doesn't. It's hard to hear what he's saying we should do in this case. But more importantly, how should we approach one another in the midst of our conflict? 
So let's go back to chapter 14, verse 1, the beginning of the chapter, and hear what he has to say to us about this. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling or without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows him to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted him. Accept the one, for God has accepted them. Now, while acceptance should go both ways, he specifically calls the church to accept, accept the one whose faith is weak in these matters. Now, as we start to apply this to things in our life, we, we often may even flip this around, and what he says would be the, contrary to what we think it should say. But he is saying that the one who is weak is specifically the one who has a conscience, who their conscience will not allow them to eat meat. The one who has that, that sense of, I am going to protect my body from any defilement. And I have prayed about this, I have studied this, and the Lord seems to have given me the conviction that I should not eat that meat. Maybe in our church today we would think, well, that's a mature Christian, that's a, you know, the stronger of the ones, but in this context, Paul is saying, no, that person is weak. Not, not that their relationship with Christ is weak, but their, their faith on this matter, at least, is described as weak. And so those who are stronger are called to accept them. Now, there are other places in which he, he strongly condemns the person who as Paul would put it, is drawn back into the law, who is, who is you know, advocating every male must be circumcised, or other things that, that sort of leads back into a legalism. Paul gets pretty heated on some of these matters, but here he says, no, we should accept the one. This is a, a disputable matter. Now, this is an odd category, but I think it's helpful. I think this may even be uh, one of the keys to this chapter, is understanding that there are there are different categories of discussions. I've been reading a book over the last uh, month or so, uh, I finished it, called Winsome Convictions. And it's a, it's a helpful book for the church in this age of the pandemic to, to not fight over everything in any way. But he says it's helpful to, to look at three different categories of things. One is the absolutes, what Martin Luther would call the essentials, those things that are clearly taught in Scripture and we believe apply to all believers at all times. So this is not something we compromise on. And the, these absolutes maybe uh, would be things that we affirm in our creeds, that, Bible, that the Bible is clearly uh, addresses, and we pretty much universally, uh, will accept as this is what Christians should do. On the other extreme of these categories is what we would call preferences. And these are things that are addressed, I mean, that are more related to our personality or maybe our style. Maybe the culture in which we were raised is, is more our preferences. I will say even coming in, I got a couple of comments about 
Well, one actually said, are you going to preach without a tie on? And uh, so I, I know that Pastor Wes usually preaches with a tie on. I, I, in my church, when I pastored in North Carolina, there was a man that genuinely believed. Pastor's not anointed if he gets up there without a tie on. And Larry was telling me, I think it was, I, I'm assuming it was half-hearted, or uh, uh, light-hearted, light I should say, not half-hearted. Um, but he said there was a man who, early in the days of his church, had the conviction not to wear a tie, that that was a worldly thing to even wear a tie. And so there, I don't know that you would call that convictions, although that could have been in some cases, um, but certainly a preference. I think, and I, I hate to belittle convictions because they're sometimes very deeply tied to emotions and I don't want to belittle that but the style of music that you listen to I mean even saying that we sang a song at our wedding 35 years ago can have an emotional draw to a particular hymn but that doesn't mean that that's the Lord saying this is what we should do it's what I would call a preference but the middle category that I, th I think is what Paul is describing when he says there are disputable matters here are things that, that genuinely arise out of our faith. When, if you read the entire chapter, I'd encourage you if you go back this afternoon or sometime this week to read through it. These are things in which they are doing this to please God and for them it is reality, it's a spiritual reality. Later on, we'll see that Paul actually says, for the one who considers that meat defiled, it is defiled for them. As if to say that it would be sinful for them to eat that meat, but for someone else, it wouldn't be sinful. That, that's the difficult part. But these, this is why Paul calls this a disputable matter. So I think part of the church recognize how the church needs to deal with conflicts that arise is discern what is essential and what is disputable. And on those disputable matters, then we go into what Paul says we need to accept the one. And he goes more specifically, for, for the one who is strong, and remember that's the one who, who can eat, the one who has the freedom to eat the meat, then they are called not to treat the other with contempt. And remember, this is not just someone who, who sort of disagrees with you. This is someone that you are debating and arguing with and fighting in the church for the church to take this stance, and you are not to hold them with contempt. I think technically, if you read through Paul's opinions on this, this is the right answer to say, it's all right to eat that. You have this freedom. We are not under law. Nothing is unclean in and of itself. He says all of this in this chapter. But, but the knowledge can divide. It can hinder the work of Christ. It can put a stumbling block towards someone else. Do not show contempt. For the weak, and remember that's the person who abstains, out of conviction, the call for that person is to not judge. Now, this is a person that came to this conclusion after prayer, after studying the scripture, 
and sensing that God was leading them this way, and this attempt for you, it, it is an action by which you are pleasing God. It, it is, in essence, your worship that you are living life this way. And Paul says, don't judge those who have come to a different conclusion. It would be easy to assume that everyone who is holy, everyone who is righteous, should feel the same way. But that is judging. And on these matters, we are called not to judge. Accept the other person as a legitimate expression of their faith. Whereas we want Paul to answer who is right. Just come as a referee in this argument and, and figure out the right and the wrong and call it as it is. Paul gives us a very unsatisfactory answer. Both are right. Or if you do it wrong, both are wrong. Life in the kingdom is not about eating and drinking. Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians 8, and he says this a little different way. He says, food does not bring us near to God, and we are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. That's, that's not the point. Instead, the kingdom is about righteousness, peace, and joy. So what can we learn from these three words? What, what is it that would give us insight? Let's look at righteousness first. That, that is an understanding of how we stand before God in, in, in right relationship. It is, are we pleasing to him? Are we doing it right? You know, this is all how we might look at righteousness. But as we read through the book of Romans, Paul is teaching what righteousness means. For in the Old Testament, it seemed to imply that you're righteous if you obeyed the law. Deuteronomy chapter 6 says, if we are careful to obey this law, all of the law, before the Lord our God as he has commanded us, this will be our righteousness. So that's sort of the way the Jews understood that. But Paul, well, not, not disagreeing with that, he says, but in reality, no one can live the law. He doesn't say you don't, don't try, he just says you can't, no one can. And because of that, Christ came to be our righteousness. And so the good news of the gospel, the good news in the book of Romans, is that this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And in chapter 3 he says there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. And so this, this rub comes about, well, what's that mean with the law? Do we obey it? Do we not? You know? The righteousness means there's freedom. The righteousness of the kingdom is not our own, it's Christ's. And you're no longer standing before a harsh judge who is, you know, scrutinizing everything you say and looking for something you say wrong or do wrong. You're now standing before a loving father who accepts you, praises you, and sees, sees you through eyes of love. Your righteousness is Christ. There is freedom in that. 
there's an absence of condemnation. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is relief in this righteousness. So righteousness, I would say, moves us from legalism to Christian freedom. Peace is the second term. Freedom found in Christ brings us into relationship with God, but it also brings us into community with other believers. In that passage, I think verse 18 or 19, we read that we are therefore to make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification, to the building up of the body, to helping one another to grow. So the challenge that is found in this chapter in dealing with this controversy is to move beyond the law and into freedom. But I think it goes beyond that. Don't stop at freedom. But let your ethic move from freedom as Christians. We can do all things to how do we live at peace within a body of believers who are building each other up. Romans 14 verse 13 says, let us stop passing judgment on one another Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of of a brother or sister. The believer whose faith is strong, who who is fully convinced that that there's nothing wrong with eating this meat and has, has the scripture to prove it. I mean, they are right. Paul says, Make up your mind to not put a stumbling block in the way of a brother or sister. In 1 Corinthians 8, he he actually says, I will not eat meat if it causes anyone who is a believer, I mean, any believer to stumble, that their faith in God, their progress in that faith would be diminished or be hindered he actually stops eating the meat. You see, there there is this, and I I don't call it a new law, but it's an expectation when you live in community that your freedom is not the end as a Christian. But there are times in which you give up this freedom for the good of those around you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, I, and he's quoting someone else. He says, some people say, I have the right to do anything. And you can hear people say that in our culture today. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. He doesn't contradict it. He just says, but there's more. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Peace, I think, moves our ethic, which is our, the foundation upon we, which we build our lives, how we live our lives, from just you're no longer under law to you have this freedom in Christ. And peace says now you have this freedom, but you're also living within a community. And there are expectations with that. How are you going to love one another? Now, we can apply this to 
any number of things to mass the vaccines to all this other stuff. And, and I think I, I could, but let me, let me apply this to an argument from a generation of, ago. And I think, in, at least in the Western church, we're still debating this. It's, a, it's the issue of abstinence from alcohol. And I, I know that this is a controversial subject in the Western church. It's going to come up at our general conference in May, and there's going to be, you know, arguments on both sides. But I, I, think, I think it's often misunderstood. Why do we even have this stance? It did not originally arise from a legalistic view of any intoxicating drink, but out of a, a need that people were finding within their congregations, that pastors and congregations were finding that we need to do something about this. And we very much know that Jesus drank wine. I've, I've heard a few people try to say it was just grape juice, but no, I believe it was wine. And I would never say it's a sin to drink alcohol. But we do live in a broken world. When people face trials, some will ease the the difficulty of the day by drinking. Take the edge off of it. And of those that drink, there's a percentage of those who cannot stop with just a few, but will drink more and become engulfed in the addiction to alcohol or alcoholism. And this, as many of you know, brings chaos to the marriage, uh, to the family dynamics, to finances, and almost every aspect of a person's life. Now, a generation ago, and I'm I'm probably thinking my grandparents' generation, maybe my great-grandparents' generation, there were no support groups like AA or Celebrate Recovery. There was not the medical support and knowledge that we have available today And it still is an issue today. I'm not saying it's outdated. But significant numbers of families were swept into this vacuum of alcoholism. And the only power that they found that could save them from this was finding Jesus. And that deliverance power of the Holy Spirit to break that bondage, that chain of alcohol, that destroyed a family. As a young pastor, I went to pastor a church in North Carolina. I can remember sitting down with Bessie Howell and her sister Kathleen. They were, I'm thinking back on it, they were probably in their early 70s, but they seemed a lot older than that to me as a 30-year-old man. And and looking back, how old? Because Bessie's still living, so she couldn't have been that old. Um, but she sure seemed old. But they started telling me when I go visit them about their, how they came to church. And they described their father before he got saved. And he worked in a textile mill in Winston-Salem. And it was a dead-end job. He, he hated it. But he worked long hours, Monday through Friday. And Friday he would get paid, and that was his day to blow off steam, and he would take his paycheck, and he and his buddies would go out drinking. 
Bessie remembers as a young girl then, him coming back late at night, drunk, pushing their mom around, and passing out on the couch. The mom would take what money he still had left, and that would be their groceries for the week. He said, we were not the only ones in this. This was Milltown. This was a common incident. They didn't call it alcoholism then. That's just what people dealt with. And Reverend McMasters was a pastor of the church at that time and started to reach out to these men particularly. And several of them came to church, got saved, and he started a Bible study. He said, there were probably 10 or 15 men. They showed me a picture of them, their Bible study class. He said, most of these were drunks before they came to Christ. And in that environment, it made sense for the church to say, we're not going to touch the stuff. We're going to create a community that you can come into, and you're not tempted to drink one or two, because you may not be able to stand it. But for the good of those who were weak, we are not going to enjoy our freedom. And they didn't say this, but I can imagine there were some in the church, and I'm not sure exactly when the church decided to, to not drink, but I imagine there were some, at whatever point that decision was made, that, that drank occasionally and very responsibly. But it was their giving up their freedom so that they could be a part of a community that would take in these men into their church. And interestingly enough, now, three generations later, these were some of the their children were some of the, the pillars of the church, and it was their parents that were looked upon with reverence, almost. Their children never touched alcohol. They saw what it could do. Their grandchildren never really hung around much with people that did. I, I was almost a great-grandchild of this generation, and I remember for me, it seemed strange that anyone would drink. I mean, I almost felt like, you know, if I touched a beer, lightning would strike. Something would happen bad to me. I, it's like, and, and for me, it no longer was about my freedom. I, it had become a law again. And I'm afraid that's what has happened for the church again today. But in anything, we have freedom. All things are permissible. But not all things are beneficial. God is calling us to love our neighbor. And love does no harm to our neighbor. So this is peace. Righteousness moves from legalism to freedom. Peace leads from that freedom to giving up our freedom for our community. The joy is that to which God is calling us. It is life to the fullest. When Jesus said, I've come life, and I've come that you may have life and have it to the full, he is saying, I want you to have this life that is beyond just what this world can provide. It's not just being healthy and rich and being outside of you know, any you know, controversy. I want you to have this life as it was intended. And that comes by following Christ's example of sacrifice. 
If you want to have life, give it up. Lose it. Surrender yourself for God. Surrender your dreams. Surrender those things that you think will make you happy. Indeed, your very life. Then you will have eternal life, which is not just everlasting, but it's that deep, rich life as it was intended. God is wanting us to make decisions not based on what we need, not based on what would make my day better, but upon what is best for others. That is the sanctification process. I, I think those of you who are married, this is what marriage is intended. Who, who laughed at that? No. that? This is what we are intended to have that we would learn to love sacrificially within that bond of marriage, but that this would be a laboratory within which we can offer that love to others within the body of Christ. And even going outside to our world where people are needy of the love of Jesus. God is wanting us to sacrifice everything all that we have, all of our money, all of our time, all of our energy, lay it on the altar. That's why we are called to be living sacrifices, Romans chapter 12. This is the continuation of that. When controversies arise, accept one another. Value them. Don't live your life for yourself. Live for the community for the people that God has put in your life. In the end, Paul asked the Roman church to change the way they lived. At least they, the, those that were stronger in their faith, that had the freedom. If you read this, he is calling on you to not eat. If there's anyone around for whom eating would be a stumbling block. He didn't call them to change their mind about this. He said, you're, you're right in what you think. You know, nothing is defiled in and of itself, but you're wrong if you do anything that calls your brother or sister to fall. Because the people of the kingdom are more important than any freedom that we gain by being in Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we desire your kingdom, that life that is to the fullest, that which you have created us to experience. And may you give us a deeper understanding of righteousness and peace and joy in your Holy Spirit. Fill us with the capacity to love Lead us to understand what it means to be living sacrifices, laying down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And in each area of controversy that may arise, may we have an acceptance, at least in these issues of disputable matters, may we accept those 
who believe differently than we do in such a way that we build them up and create peace in your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.